if you're new here and don't know, my name is Adam, and I'm the senior pastor here at First Free Church. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope that you will be encouraged by our worship time together. If you are watching online, thanks to those of you joining us as well, whether you're in the building right now or online watching us, which, by the way, still only about 20% are actually here in the building. So most people are watching online. We hope to have you back soon, as soon as you are comfortable being here. We've got lots more room to spread out and social distance. Everybody's wearing masks, except for me right now, obviously, because as you know, it is hard to talk through a muffled mask when you're up here, but we'd love to have you come back whenever you're ready. If you're new here today, please take a moment and fill out our Connect card at efree.org connect. would love to get to know you better. Well, we're in the middle of a series on Colossians right now called Rooted in Christ. And we have a special day today because we have a guest speaker. Barrett Moore has been working at our church for a while now. He works with me very closely on a lot of different projects, does an incredible job. And he also has a degree in ministry and is preparing to be a pastor one day. We have a strong emphasis here on developing and equipping future leaders for the kingdom of God. That's one of the things we feel very strongly about. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says that the job of church leaders is to equip the believers for the work of the ministry. And that's what we want to do. And sometimes that means we who are in ministry have to take a bit of a step back to allow those who are preparing for ministry to step into it. And that is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to step back, and Barrett is going to speak to you today. But really, our hope is, and Barrett and I have talked about this, we, we want God to speak to you today. And Barrett has said repeatedly, I just want to get out of the way. We prayed this together. He wants to get out of the way so God can speak to you through him. And I think that's exactly what is going to happen. So, would you do me a favor and make him feel welcome? Welcome him to the stage. Barrett, come on up. All right. All right. Thank you, Adam. Hello, First Free. Good morning. Good morning. I would like to also give a uh, warm welcome to everyone online, as Adam did. Uh, as he said, my name is Barrett Moore. I am the executive assistant here to Adam at First Free. And uh, I do have one slight correction, though. Um, I'm only Barrett Moore if I do a good job today. Because as Paul said, I can become all things to all people. Just don't check me on the context. So if I do a good job, I'm Barrett Moore. If I do a bad job, Hello, my name is Adam Bowers. I would like to introduce you to First Free Church. You can email me at pastor at efree.org. Again, that's pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, at efree.org. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to get nasty with it, too. I mean, you can, you can really get mean with it, for sure. So, again, if you have any problems with my sermon today, Adam Bowers. All right. So, with that out of the way, uh, today we will be reading out of Colossians 2. So, would you pray with me this morning? Not only that God would get me out of the way and uh, he, would, he would speak to you with what he once said today, but also that I didn't just lose my job by asking hundreds of people to attack my boss. So, dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church and this opportunity to learn from you and learn from your word. We just pray that from Paul's letter to the Colossians today, we would learn more about what, what you ask of us, Father, and and how to really handle the issue of spiritual additives. Um, we, we pray that today, after we leave this church, we would all be just a little bit closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So this morning we'll be reading out of Colossians 2, specifically verses 16 through 23. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, that'll be about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. And as Adam, the actual Adam, not me, Adam, 
told us last week, the book of Colossians was actually a letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae. There we go. There we go. And this letter was written to the believers in Colossae not because they were doing anything wrong, but Paul actually wrote this letter to those believers because they were doing things right. And so Paul isn't reprimanding these believers. That's important to understand as we go through. He's not, he's not writing this letter to say, you messed up and you need to fix this. He's saying it because there are some other Christians uh, or other people calling themselves Christians saying, yeah, Jesus is all fine and dandy, but uh, you need him plus this and this and this. And so Paul is addressing to the people in Colossae to stay on the right path that they are already on. So you guys are doing things right. You're doing it great. I don't want you to veer off because of these false teachers. So now let's jump into the word of God, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the, of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. And Colossians 1, which we went through a few weeks ago, tells us that the body is the church. Right. So what is verse 19 saying then? You can be a part of the body, but apart from the head. I'll repeat that again. You can be a part of the body, yet apart from the head. You can be in this church building. You can walk, talk, sound like the church people. But have you ever seen a body without a head? I have not, but I can assume that it's not good for a whole lot, right? A body without a head isn't going to do anything. But Christ, the head of the body, holds the whole body together. And he holds it together and it grows. Why? Well, no, there's, there's no way I'm reading that right. Could y'all read that for me? Why is it growing? Well, it's because God nourishes it. God grows the body, not us. And I guess, I guess that makes sense, right, when you really think about it. Because did you call up God and tell him, I would like to be six feet tall and a hundred and something pounds, and I would like to be born in this state at this time? Well, no. If I had a choice, I probably wouldn't have chosen to look 12 by the time I pay my own rent. But God did not give me that choice <laughs> because God grows the body, right? It's not us. We don't really get a say. God grows the body. So this is the first hint in this passage that we were not created to be inward, but to be outward focused, right? It's not about us or what we can do or how good we can be, but it's about how God will work through us for his purpose. So continuing on, verse 20, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So is Paul just saying, 
out with the rules. Just follow Jesus, and then nothing else matters. Because that would make my job a lot easier, right? I probably didn't need a ministry degree to get that far. I don't know. Adam's got it easy. Or, or is Paul saying that the rules were never really the point? I think so, but we need to understand him correctly. So let's backtrack a bit to verse 1. Now, I went to Bible college, and if I learned anything in college, it is that Christians love catchphrases, absolutely love catchphrases. So I'm going to give you a catchphrase today. Many of you have probably heard it before, coming from that first verse. So when we see that, verse, that first verse, we see a so. In other versions, that can be translated therefore. So now, here's the catchphrase, and I can't tell you exactly why, but I promise you, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. Every time you see the word therefore, you're going to remember this face, and I'm sorry for that, but here's the catchphrase. What is the therefore, therefore? So if we look back at verses 13 through 15, which Adam covered last week, this is what the therefore is therefore. You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And unironically, that gives me goosebumps. So I'm going to read it one more time. Let's go through that quickly. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And if you're ready for some more goosebumps, if you think you can handle it, Let's go to Colossians 1.15 because it tells us Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. So when we, with our sins, put Christ on a cross on the side of the road, publicly shaming him, he was in fact publicly shaming the spiritual rulers of this world. He was putting to death sin and death itself. Christ tells us that he gave up his life freely. No one took it from him. We didn't have the ability to take it from him. Christ gave his life freely. I lay it down voluntarily, he says. We did not earn forgiveness from God, but he freely gave it to us. Now, knowing that, let's go through verse 16 one more time. So, therefore... Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. And so here's our first point for the day. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Christ is the reality. Christ is the reality. And so for context, we should understand that first verse like this. For the Jewish people, holy days would be like Passover, for example. Once a year, huge deal. New moon ceremonies, well, how often is a new moon? Once a month. And then Sabbaths, well, that's from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday once a week. So Paul is kind of covering the whole calendar year, right? He's saying no matter how big or how small it is, don't let someone condemn you for not celebrating these things. 
Now, what is Paul not saying? Well, he's not saying that any of these things are bad. And that's very, very important to understand today. Paul is not saying that self-discipline or eating or drinking or celebrating these things is inherently wrong. These things aren't inherently idolatrous. But so often, we allow them to become idolatrous. We allow these spiritual additives to become an entry fee, a ticket into Christianity. So what is Paul saying? Don't let anyone force these extra things on you. To use Passover again as a great example, do we remember what Passover was originally for? If you don't, Passover is when God, while the Jews were still slaves in Egypt before the Exodus, God sends the angel of death over Egypt. This is the 10th plague, and he tells everyone in the land of Egypt, I'm going to take the life of your firstborn son. And now that sounds very, very harsh. But if we remember what God said to prevent it, this is it. Just put the blood of a lamb over your door. That's it. Blood of a lamb, save your firstborn son. It is that easy. And this was offered to the Egyptians as well. Just put the blood of a lamb above your door and God will pass over you. The angel of death will pass over, hence the name. So, if we look at this as a shadow of the reality, what does that mean? Well, in Passover, the sacrificial lamb was slain, the price was a firstborn son, and forgiveness was freely given to all, although many would not accept it. So Christ is the reality. Christ is the fulfillment of Passover. So what Paul is saying is not that Passover is inherently wrong, but that Passover was never the point. Passover was an end to a mean to get us to here, and we have it now. We have Christ, and he is the reality. So the new moon ceremonies, the festivals, the Sabbaths were all meant to get us to Christ, but we now have him here in front of us. I remember how when I got to go to Israel this past summer, and that is 2019 summer, obviously not 2020 summer. While I was there, I was able to visit the Wailing Wall. Has anyone here ever been to Israel, been able to see the Wailing Wall? Okay, so actually a fair amount. All right. So the Wailing Wall, um, I think I have a picture here. So if you see this kind of dome on the top, that is the Temple Mount. This is now, uh, like today, if you went there right now, that dome is actually the top of a mosque because the Arab countries surrounding Israel have control of the Temple Mount. Um, but in short, to, to oversimplify a very, very complex issue, this single spot that, where that dome is is one of the most contested places on the entire earth. This single piece of land has very likely been fought over for longer and more often than any other land in the entire world. And there is one reason. Because that is where God resides, in the Holy of Holies. Or, at least that's where he did reside. Get to that in a second. So the Wailing Wall, the Wailing Wall, next picture, please. The Wailing Wall, this is directly under that Temple Mount. Jews, hundreds, possibly thousands, depending on the days that you go, will go to this wall and put their hands on it 
and pray fervently, writing notes, sticking it in the wall, praying for God to come back to the Temple Mount. Because they understand, for a reason that they cannot understand, that God is no longer in the temple. And so some of them think maybe God has forsaken them. Some of them think that God just doesn't care anymore. But what does Matthew 27, 50 say? And when Jesus on the cross had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Because again, we did not take his spirit. He gave it freely for us. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And I can honestly say, I don't think I have ever felt as heartbroken as I was standing at the Wailing Wall. Because, because we have the answer. They understand God's no longer in the temple, but we can tell them that God split a 32 by 64 foot three-inch thick, four-ton, took 300 men to carry curtain from top to bottom in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence used to reside is now free for all. We are all now able to be the temple ourselves, and God can reside in us. And we have that answer, yet they, they stand there day in, day out, praying for God to return. I remember at my old job, I was sitting in the server station probably avoiding bringing dishes back, if I'm being honest, with a coworker who was probably also avoiding bringing dishes back. And knowing that I was in school to be a pastor, he, he kind of told me something. I don't think God, if there is a God, no matter what religion it is, I don't think God would ever have come down as a man. So he's like, any, any religion that claims a man, I'm not about it. I don't think God being that big, if he created the universe, he would never come down to be one of us. And then that, that's when I said, exactly. That's the gospel, dude. You nailed it. That's nail on the head. That's it. Why would God, King of kings, Lord of lords, come down from heaven when I have nothing to offer him, right? Why would he freely give me forgiveness? There's no, there's no way I can comprehend that. That's why I just tell the guy, exactly, exactly, you got it. But you see, in Jesus' day, and when Paul was writing this letter, there were many groups who thought very similar to my friend. In a sense, this is still what many Jews believe today. They are waiting for a flesh and blood man to lead the literal state of Israel to literally rule the world. That's why when Paul says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things, that would have made perfect sense to the Christians of that day. These Christians that Paul is writing to, they have it right, but there are these groups, like I said, these groups that are adding on to the gospel, saying Jesus is great, but you need just a little bit more. You're not doing it right. You need just a little bit more. They're insisting on self-denial for the sake of self-denial and the worship of angels as an addition to the worship of Christ because they think that these things can make them a better Christian. They think they can raise the bar, per se, of Jesus Christ on a cross. They think that Christ dying is great, but there's no way it's that simple, right? 
there's no, there's no way God would just give it to us for free. I think you guys have to have it wrong. There's no way God would do that. Another group that's very similar to this mindset would have been the Pharisees. And so you see, if you have a physical Bible, turn to Malachi, the end of Malachi. And if you use uh, the digital Bible, that works just as well. If you go to the end of Malachi, this is kind of cool. Go to just that very last page. And do you see this? This single page at the end of Malachi. That's 400 years. If you swipe on your phone from Malachi to the New Testament, you just swiped through 400 years of silence from God. And in that 400 years of silence, in that moment, in your hands that you just swiped through is when the Pharisees rise up. If you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that these guys are just, they followed the law to a T. They were perfect on the outside. They were the kings of legalism, right? And they were always trying to catch Jesus in a trap, asking him questions that could trip him up. And then Jesus never gets tripped up. It's the funniest thing in the world. But in the time in between that 400 years, these guys added 600 rules to the Jewish law. 600 rules. And these are rules that aren't even like the actual rules. These are rules that are like, well, I guess, I guess you could technically do that, so now you can't. And I guess that wasn't technically not allowed, so now it isn't allowed. And then they do that 598 more times. Pride tells us that these rules... These additions to Christ can make us more spiritual. The danger is that all of these false Christian teachers, the religious Judaism of the Pharisees, could lead people to wrongly believe that devotion and self-denial and discipline would make them closer to God. They think that being more spiritual is what it means to be a Christian. But here's our first point for today. Following Christ is what it means to be a Christian. Following Christ is what it means to be a Christian. If that sounds too easy, then I'll tell you what I told my coworker. It is. Because it's not about us. It's not about if I can say the right things or if I can do the right things or if I can look like I have it all together. It's about Christ coming down for me. I did forget to mention one thing. Paul, the guy writing this letter, was also a Pharisee. And not only that, he was one of the best Pharisees. He said he never broke a single one of the Judaic laws. And not only that, but then not a single one of the 600 laws on top of it. But then God, blinding Paul on Damascus Road, smacking him upside the head, and saying, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me, saved him. Paul murdered Christians, and then he wrote half the New Testament. He tells us not to boast. He was the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. He was the best Pharisee there was, and he was a murderer. There are no good or bad Christians, and that sounds radical. But there are only Christians saved, redeemed, and sanctified by Christ alone. It cannot be Barrett plus Barrett's good works, or Adam plus Adam's good works, or Kevin and Kevin's good works. It can't, it can't be me 
plus what I have done if there's an infinite gap between me and God? Because the only thing that can fill that gap is God himself coming down, giving his son for us. The irony is that rather than following Christ, we begin to follow our ability to follow Christ. Let me repeat that. Rather than following Christ, rather than giving our lives to him, we begin to give our lives to our ability to follow him, to our own merit, to how good I can be, to how good I can look, if I can say the right things. As Peter 2.1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So this is a very similar issue to what we're dealing with with in Colossae. But you know how the chapter ends? Verse 21 says, It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. Once we have known Christ, why would we return to the things of the world? Once we've known the true freedom and the true grace and the true love of Christ, why would we return to my own merit? Why would I want to return to me doing the best I can to not make God angry? Me doing the best I can to, to make God not smite me? Because that's the things of the world. It is, it is do this and this, and then God's happy with you. Why would we return to that? Because all we have to offer to God is hot dog chunks and corn. We've got vomit. God has everything. We bring nothing to the table, and God brings everything to the table. Lastly, my final point for today, if you're taking notes, we are free from appearances. Verse 20 You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So Paul is saying... These rules seem wise, they look really good, but they're not actually doing anything. None of these rules, the festivals, the Sabbaths, were ever the point. They were leading to something. As Adam said last week, what if the demons wised up and realized that they could do more damage by not showing themselves at all? Because here it says, you've died with Christ and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So what if the demons understanding that we have been set free, that they can do a whole lot more damage in this world by not, you know, exorcist grabbing someone and throwing them against the ceiling? What if by laying low, they don't get to have as much fun, right? They don't get to mess with people as out in the open, but if they can get us to believe that no bad spirituality exists, there's no demons the next logical step is to believe there's no good. By not showing themselves, they can naturally lead us to believe that God as a concept doesn't exist. 
And so we, we don't have to deal with the issue of the living, breathing man of Christ, the historical figure even, of a man called Jesus Christ who walked this earth and called himself God. We don't have to even, even mess with that issue if the devil can get us to believe that God as a concept doesn't even exist. We don't have to deal with Jesus as a person if we can not believe that God as a concept doesn't exist. We won't have to wrestle with that historical figure. And then even worse than that, the devil has, doesn't have to beat God if he can just make the task of following God seem so insurmountable that we will leave ourselves. And I believe each and every one of us likely has known someone that has walked away from the church for this exact reason. Because the religion of it all, the rules of it all, I, if, if I do this and this and this, but then I mess up that one, well, now God's mad at me, and so I have to go do this and this and this to make up for what I did before. The religion of it all tells us that, well, you can't be good enough, and so it's just gonna be a constant effort trying to be good enough. You will fail, and God is going to be angry at you. All of these rules, Paul says, will deteriorate. They were never the end goal. Because do you realize how much pressure that is? Do you see the unreal weight we begin to hold on our shoulders and we're not even supposed to? Well, if I can't get these rules right, if I can't be a good enough Christian, if God is just always going to be mad at me, I, I don't want to deal with all of your Christian rules, I'm not even going to mess with it. But Jesus isn't a religion, Jesus is God. And he offers his hand for you freely. This reminds me of a story, the woman caught in adultery. So will you read this with me? Just 11 simple verses. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, there are boys back at it again, the Pharisees brought up a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? And to be conscious of my audience, it does take two to tango, but for some reason, they only care about this woman. The man was left behind. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus, Jesus stoops down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again, and he said, all right, but let the one of you who has not sinned throw the first stone. Then he stoops down again, continues to write in the dirt. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, only until Jesus was left in the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. One of the great mysteries of the Bible is what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Some think it may have been scripture, some think maybe it was, it was actually the sins of the people accusing the woman. But I think, 
I think it doesn't matter. I think Jesus was more concerned with this woman who is likely feeling more shame and guilt and fear than any of us can even imagine. Standing in the temple where all of your friends and family, all the people you went to school with, all the people you grew up with, are standing there looking at you, saying, I, I knew she was, she was going to do that. She is such a screw-up. How dare she do that to that man, right? How dare she make him do that? And not even that, she's also fearing for her life. But Jesus, kneeling down, shows her the face of God. And then he says, I do not condemn you. So we, we come to God again and again and again saying, God, I messed up. God, I, I can't get rid of this guilt and this fear and this shame that I'm holding in. God, I don't know how I'm ever going to live down what I did. I'm sorry. And God says, where are your accusers? Jesus says, where are your accusers? Because it's not me. I'm the only one just to condemn you. Jesus, the only one just to condemn us, does not. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? No one else can condemn us, no matter how good they may seem, no matter how good they appear. No one else has the merit to condemn us. The only one who does looks us in the eyes and says, I love you, you are free, you are forgiven. So you see the final verse. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. These rules, the rules that seemed so wise, the rules that make us appear put together, they only serve to bolster our pride and further distance us from the God who has come down the mountain to save us. The problem with all of this is that while we are attempting to do all the good things that, so that we can, we can earn our way to God on top of this mountaintop, we can, we can climb our way up to him like every other religion in the world, the problem is that at the same time as we were doing that, at the same time as the Pharisees were doing that, God had already built a way down, and we miss each other. It's not about appearing to be a good Christian. It's about following Christ, period. The only one who can condemn us does not, and he came down to die for us. And he says, go and sin no more. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you again for this church. Thank you for your people here. Thank you for everyone online joining us today for your message from Colossians and for your unconditional love, Father. Thank you that you sent your son to die for us, not because we deserved it, but precisely because we did not deserve it, precisely because we couldn't earn it, Father. So you came down and you freely gave us yourself. We could never fill the gap between us, God, so you filled it for us. All we have to do is trust in you, Father. That's it. 
Thank you, Father, for everything you've done. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.